I encourage everyone to open up their Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. Today we're going to be finishing out our series through the letter of 2 Thessalonians. We're going to be covering the last seven verses of chapter 3. So I hope that you have been following along over the past however many weeks. Uh, We do stream everything online, so you can always go back and listen to any sermon you might have missed. If you're joining us from home, I'm glad you're here uh, with us this morning as well. I don't know how many of you have seen these stickers out there. These stickers, if you don't know, signify uh, different marathons, different type of races and marathons that people run, and, and people are proud of the fact that they've completed a marathon. They get a sticker, they put it on their uh, back window. And, man, some of those things are, are an accomplishment. That last one, 140.6, that's an Ironman something or another marathon. Um, if I was to get a sticker... For my running accomplishments, this is what I would put on the back of my truck window. I know that may come as a surprise to some of you, but that's it. That's as much marathon running as I have done. If you see a 0.0 on the back of my truck, that's what it signifies. So I have no interest in running. I have no interest in running a marathon, but I have been reading about marathons and marathon running uh, in preparation for the sermon, not because of any hobby. Uh, however, uh, one of the things I was reading about is a phenomenon that I was actually familiar with a little bit during my time playing lacrosse in college, and, and it was this common phrase called hitting the wall. And when marathon runners especially, now usually for them it's between miles 18 and 20. For me it's like between .5 and .75 that you start hitting the wall. And and what happens when you hit the wall is your brain starts telling your body that you're done, that there is no more energy, there's no more fuel source, you have got to stop. This is how this article that I was reading on runnersworld.com, it describes it like this. It feels like you have run face first into a stack of bricks, hence the wall. Your legs start feeling like concrete posts. Every step is a triumph of the will, and you seriously doubt that the race actually has a finish line. That's what it feels like to start hitting the wall. And and when your brain is telling your body that it has no more reserves, there's no fuel to take, it just says stop. And all those negative feelings and emotions, or common sense in my case, kicks in and says, no more, don't run another step. But what scientists tells us is our brain is actually telling us something that's not true. Uh, We do have extra fuel sources in our body that you can dig deeper for. The challenge comes in pushing through the wall and not listening to the negative thoughts and feelings in your body as it's screaming for relief to to keep going, to, to push through because... You do have other reserves. Just It's just not the usual reserves that your body is using. And there's all kinds of fun scientific things that we won't get into there. But the main point is that the fuel's there. Your brain's telling you no. And, and one of the best ways you can go through the wall is to train your body, is to be disciplined, is to push yourself through this discipline or torture over and over again until you kind of get used to getting through the wall and your body realizes, oh, I can't just get the easy fuel. I have to dig deep. I don't know if the church in Thessalonica was familiar with the term hitting the wall. 
But I can't help but think that there are some within the church who are feeling this kind of thought, of pressure, of of weariness in a spiritual sense. Through the course of this series, we've seen many, many things that the church was up against. In chapter 1, Paul talked about all the persecutions and afflictions and suffering that the church was enduring for the kingdom of God. He's talked about the, the judgment and the suffering and the destruction that's going to be coming upon those who don't believe. In chapter 2, he's talking about things like the day of the Lord and false teachers and imposters and then things like the man of lawlessness and deceptions and just the general wickedness within the world. And then over the past couple of weeks, we've been diving into chapter 3, and he he turns the focus inward to the church, and he says, the church, you have problems within you as well. And especially last week, we talked about those who were lazy, who were idle, who had become busybodies instead of busy, and they were just happy to take advantage of the church. And so with all of these difficulties and all of these challenges, I am sure that there were some in the church who were just asking the question, why? Why go on? Is any of this really worth it? There may have been some who were just plain questioning their faith. How could I believe in a God when all of these things are happening around me? Is it really worth pressing on? Is it really worth going through all of this to push through this wall? But then I think about us and our church. And I think over the past couple of years, especially, and I look across the room, and man, some of you have, have, have had to endure some difficult circumstances. Some of you have faced pressures of the world in a new, unique, more intense way. Some of you have lost your jobs. Some of you have dealt with just financial hardships. Some of you, multiple people in our congregation, have received life-changing diagnoses. Many of you are, are experiencing newfound stress maybe in your, in your marriages or your homes and your, in your families. Some of you are just feeling tired and, and beat down in, in a particular sense of, of weariness. And that isn't even to address what's happening in our world of politics and COVID and the 24-hour news cycle that just seems to scream that the world has lost its mind. And I wonder... How many of us are just tired, are just weary? And you're wondering, along with maybe some of those in this church in Thessalonica, is it worth it? And if it is worth it, well, how am I supposed to go on? Where am I supposed to dig deep for those reserves? Because, man, everything around me is telling me, no, it's not worth it. I might as well just give up. Why don't I go be like some of those idlers, sit back, let the church take care of me for a while. What's the point? What am I supposed to do? But as we come to the end of this letter, these last few verses from Paul, I think it's fitting that we do find an encouragement. We find an encouragement to keep pressing on, to stay diligent in good works, to stay committed to genuine community, to stay reliant on God's grace. Paul's main message as he ends this letter is to keep on keeping on. To stay faithful to the God that has saved you and to look forward to his return. 
So as we open up these last few verses of Second Thessalonians chapter 3, we'll be starting in verse 13. Just take a moment and pray with me. Lord, I pray that Your presence would be apparent to us this morning, that You would inform our hearts and our minds, that even with all the things around us, that we'd be able to focus in, that we'd be able to hear Your Word, Your truth, Your Spirit this morning, that would be a true encouragement to us, that would be a true challenge to us as well, to live out the life that You have called us to, that we would stay faithful in our calling. Lord, we pray these things in Your name. Amen. All right, so we're in 2 Thessalonians one more time, chapter 3, verse 13. I encourage you to look at it in your Bible and make sure you can keep me honest that I'm going through the text. So verse 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Here's the first encouragement Paul has for the church. Stay diligent in good works. Stay diligent in good works. As for you, brothers and sisters... Do not grow weary in doing good. Here in this verse, Paul's acknowledging that there's a struggle. There might be reasons for your weariness, but you are to continue to do good. Especially coming off of last week where this group of people is dropping out. They're, they're bailing on you. They're, they're saying, nah, you do the work and, and just help me out because I don't want to. That's really what Paul's looking at and addressing. He's saying, no, you don't grow weary in well-doing or in doing good, but continue to do good. All right, so imagine you're back in one of those marathons, whatever distance you prefer, and you're, you're running with a group of people. And you're running with a group of people, and you start out good, and, and you're going, and you're at a good pace, but then all of a sudden someone takes the right turn. You don't know why. They're going that way. But the rest of the group is still going. So you're just like, well, I don't know where that guy went. And you keep going. And then someone goes off to the left. And then the person you're running next to says, you know what, man, I'm tired. I don't think this is really worth it. I heard that there's free pizza down the road. I'm going to that party. I'm not doing this. In that moment, I may be tempted to go grab the pizza, right? And, and, and this is kind of what's happening in the church where there's, there's a bunch of people who start off well and all together and they're doing good works. And then some people are just like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. They're going left. They're going right. They're saying, no, nah, not worth it. I'll just wait for someone to bring me the pizza. Get, give me the prize at the end. You, you just go ahead and do the work. How would you feel? You feel abandoned. You feel betrayed in, in some ways, I'm sure. And then you're asking, well, am I a sucker? <laughs> Why am I the one doing this, this work? But Paul's telling the church, no, you ought to keep going. You need to keep going. Don't grow weary. And this word weary is important because it's not talking about being tired. It's not just talking about being physically tired. Paul's acknowledging that, yeah, there there might be a struggle here, and you might be tired in some way, but this idea of weary is actually about the heart. It's about being discouraged. It's about losing spirit, losing heart in what you're doing, it, it really speaks to our motivation in the things and the reasons why we're doing what we're doing. In this particular case, good works. And Paul says, no, don't grow weary. And we've already addressed some of the things that are making maybe you and I weary today. We've seen some things that are making the, the church at Thessalonica weary in, in their day. There's one more thing that I think is important before we move on to just mention briefly. There's another reason for that we might find ourselves growing weary today, and that's simply our own sinful flesh. Listen, we like ease. We like comfort. I'm right there. 
But doing something hard, that means we're going to have to sacrifice. We're going to have to give something up. And, you know, sometimes our flesh just says, I don't want to. Sometimes it's you've tried. You've, you've tried in the past but haven't got any success. And so that has built and built. And you're like, you know what? It's not worth it. I don't want to keep trying. I haven't found any success. Why would I, why would I keep doing that? Or maybe you've been doing really good and you've been looking out for people and you've been, you've been trying to do the good works that Paul has called us to, but no one's returned the favor. Or maybe people have been indifferent. They don't even seem to care the way that you've been going out of your way to treat them well. Maybe you've even been treated poorly in return. Maybe that there's just a growing distrust in your own heart. Man, I don't know if I believe. I, I don't know if I can trust God. And, and when, when all these things combine, whether it's the inner circumstance or the external circumstance, we get into a position where man is very tempted to be weary. But if we allow ourselves to get weary, we're this close from stopping the race. It doesn't really matter the reason because Paul's encouragement remains the same. He says, be diligent in doing good. Don't allow anything to cause us to lose heart as we seek to follow God. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, then what does it look like to do good? I like how Spurgeon puts it as he expounds from this passage. He says, everything is well-doing what we read as doing good. Everything is well-doing, which is done from a sense of duty with dependence upon God and faith in His Word, out of love for Christ, in goodwill towards other workers, with prayer for direction, acceptance, and blessing. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that all work is an opportunity for us to do good, to demonstrate our faith in the Lord. This is why Paul said in Colossians 3:23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This means that even the mundane task of life, what you do as a as a mom or a dad as home, at home, what you do teenagers as students and and doing those assignments that you could care less about some days. Right? No, you get the opportunity to do good by doing it for the Lord. We ought to be diligent in our vocations. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a policeman or a teacher or a janitor. Fill in the blank. Whatever your vocation is, Paul's telling us don't grow weary in, in doing good. Do it for the Lord. But it goes beyond our vocations, our current status in life. It, it also speaks to how we approach church and how we serve the church. We should be diligent in the way that we teach and preach here at the chapel. Hold me to it. Hold Pastor Keith to it. We should be diligent in how we serve our children, how we talk and, to people that we relate with and talk with on a weekly basis. This should affect how we serve in our food pantry, how we serve our children in children's ministry or nursery. It's, it's why people join the handyman ministry and a small group, all these different things. Like We have an opportunity to serve and do good within the context of our local church. So we should be diligent in those things. It also speaks to how we should approach charity, how we help and look out and perform good works for those even outside of our church. Everything is an opportunity to do good, to show the world our faith in Christ. Paul's encouragement is not to grow weary, to not become discouraged, even if there's a slacker sitting next to you. Even if some, some people in this room don't get it, 
They're turning this way or that way or saying it's not worth it. Paul's saying, no, don't worry about them. You do what's right. Don't grow weary in doing good. While the command to grow weary should be good enough on its own, I think it might be helpful just to think through a few thoughts that will that will help us keep, keep running in this marathon. Whenever we're tempted to despair, I think there's a few things that we might want to remember. The first one is this. It would be helpful to remember how far we've come, where we've come, where we've come from, and how we've progressed. You should be able to look back and say, yeah, this is where I once was, and, and this is how I see God has used the circumstances and even the difficult people in my life to grow me. This is how God has used me to help bless this person or this person. This is how God has been at work in my life, and I can see how God has worked. So we need to remember to look back, to see how far we've come, to look at those positive aspects of where God has been working in our lives. I think it's also helpful to remember what's at stake how significant the, the choices are that we make in our lives. Paul reminds the Corinthians of this very truth, that the, the stakes in this race are much higher than just some marathon that people might run on a weekend. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or a sticker that they can put on the back of their car. But we, an imperishable, something that never fades, that is eternal, that will last forever, this is why we run. So I do not run aimlessly. There is a point. I do not box as one beating the air. But what does Paul do? I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You need to remember what's at stake. There are eternal things at stake in, in what and how we live among our church and the world at large. We should remember what is at stake. We should also remember the example of those who have come before us. That could be a godly parent, a mom or a dad, a grandfather, a grandmother. It could be a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, a leader, a friend, a mentor. But remember how they have invested in others, how they particularly have invested in you. Go beyond them and think of missionaries, what lengths and extents they went to to bring the gospel, to teach the word of God to people who have never heard before. Remember their example. Remember the example of people like Paul, the founders in many ways of all the churches that in the region where he went at great personal cost to bring the word. We re remember the example of those who have come before. And that means we should especially remember the example of Christ himself. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 12. Let us also lay aside every weight. Do not grow weary. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God consider him remember him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. People may treat you bad. 
it may be unfair. Remember Christ. And lastly, we ought to remember the promise of eternal life. To all those who walk by faith in the Spirit, this is what Paul says over in Galatians, a similar passage and even wording here. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows in the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially those who are of the household of faith. Are you you sensing that theme? Do not grow weary of doing good. Stick with it. Keep on keeping on. So hopefully that gives us some perspective behind where Paul is coming from when he says, do not grow weary in well-doing. Paul then addresses how the church should handle those who, who weren't listening to those commands, who we talked about last week, who were the idle and the busybodies and the ones happy and content to sit back and, and let all the other people do the work and, and they would reap the benefits there. Pastor Keith skipped over how we're supposed to treat those people. He left that for me this morning. So let's look at it. It's verse 14 and 15. He gets specific about how we're supposed to treat these people. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Here, Paul is addressing this recurring problem in the church. He's just addressed it in the verses before that. He addressed it in 1 Thessalonians, the first time he wrote them, in chapters 4 and chapters 5. It was a recurring, growing problem. But the principle is actually pretty straightforward. It's not complicated. It's not even hard to understand. It's just laid out. If someone isn't obeying, you look at them, you take note of that, and you say, no, you cannot come over to dinner at my house. No, we are not going to just see you at the men's breakfast and say that everything's okay. No, we see that you're not in following, following the instructions of God's Word. We're not going to pretend like everything's okay. No, we're going to remove fellowship from you. We're not excommunicating them. We're not kicking them out of the church at this point. We haven't got there yet. This is on an individual level. You know somebody. You see a, a, a sin or, or, or something that goes contrary to the teaching here. You're to take note of them. You should warn them that what they're doing is, is not what God has called them to do. But then you remove yourself from them. No, you can't come to dinner. No, you're not allowed to come to Johnny's soccer game. No, we can't just have you at men's breakfast and pretend everything's okay. No. Come to church and you're going to hear repent. Come to church and we're going to tell you to walk in the ways of God. Why? Why? It sounds kind of harsh. This doesn't sound very loving at all. But the reason is, is right here so that he might be ashamed. Well, we don't want anyone to feel ashamed. Yes, we do. We do. For their sake, it's not a judgment on our part. We have concern for their soul and they're going against what God says. And so we want them to feel the weight of their sin and their affront against God. And so we say, Warn, warning them. We can't participate with you because we want you to come back. We want you to be restored. We want you to be reconciled. We want you to be back on track to run the marathon well with us. So the, the principle is really easy. I don't know why Pastor Keith couldn't just Say that. 
That's it. Here's where it gets tricky. The principle is simple. But the application of this principle is where it gets difficult, is where it gets tricky. And this is why. There's several reasons here. We no longer live in the first century. Okay, The Christians in that day were highly dependent on one another. Not just as they gathered for church on Sunday, but really in a lot of ways for their own personal survival. Not only that, there, there was only one church. Everyone was kind of gathered together as they worshipped and fellowshiped and did life together. There was only one church. This is very different than our culture today. We live in a very individualized culture. We are very self-dependent and take pride in that. The concepts of shame and honor from the first century, they really don't connect with our modern day view of things. And on top of that, take out your phones and do it now, please, and say, church is near me. Chapel Lake will show up because you're here. But you know what? About a hundred churches will show up within driving distance. And so that makes this more difficult to apply this principle for a couple of reasons. If someone tries to shame you for your sinful actions, you might be like, by not inviting them to you over to their house for dinner, you might be like, oh, okay. If you're feeling uncomfortable here, you might just say, well, that's fine. I'll just go down to that church. And maybe they'll be more accepting of me and like me for who I am, and I'll just go there and find the community that I need. The same way with making friends. In our culture, if you don't have friends here in this room, it's really not that big of a deal. Because you're not really relying on anyone else in this room for much of anything at all. You can go be friends with your neighbors, with your family, with other people, with coworkers. You can go find new friends at this new church that you might find yourself at. But maybe most importantly, there's also this other concern, especially in our culture today, that if people took note of you because of your disobedience, as Paul says, and stop treating you as a friend and inviting you to their house, you might not notice because they've never done it. You've been here and you're like, well, I don't really know if people are inviting me or not inviting me because they never did in the first place. So how in the world are we supposed to apply this text to this kind of culture? Well, maybe in a literal sense this is a little problematic. So maybe we should just cross them out. We'll take our Sharpie and say, no longer applies in 21st century. You know anything about our church? No, no, we never do that. Okay, but what it, what it means is we have to dig a little deeper. We have to find the common principle that supersedes culture, where it's not dependent on the first century and it's not dependent on our century because I think there is a supracultural principle that we need to consider. And here it is. We need to stay committed to genuine community. We need to stay committed to genuine community. You might be thinking, well, that sounds nice, except it sounds exactly the opposite of what Paul just said. He said, take note of them, have nothing to do with them. Make them feel shame. And I'm saying Paul is, the, what's behind Paul is stay committed to genuine community. And I really don't think that leap is very far. Because what's implied in having nothing to do with them and in shaming them, is that community is essential for the life of the believer. That the church 
in Paul's day, but I believe should still be happening in our day, that the church is so important to the believer that if he or she was ever being avoided because of their own disobedience, they would be compelled to make it right so that they could rejoin the church in good standing. This is why Paul, in verse 15, encourages the church not to regard them as enemies. This isn't about standing in the corner and pointing and shaming and making them feel bad. No, no, it's not about that. Don't treat them as enemies, but regard them as brothers, as sisters. Paul is telling the church to use this idea of community as leverage to keep the people on the right path. If you think back to this picture of a marathon, you have the negative example of people going left and right, and a man is discouraging. People are dropping out. But now imagine you're running, and you're running with people who get it, who want to get to the same destination as you, and also care about you arriving in that same destination. And so as you're running, they're saying, hey, let's go. Hey, you can do it. And you say, I'm tired. They say, no, you just got to push through it. You're just hitting the wall. Just keep going. They're encouraging you. They're cheering you on. They're saying, oh, no, don't take that step. Don't take that turn. Stay on the right path. Imagine if you had a group of people helping you in that marathon. You think you'd do better? I promise you, you would. This is what Paul's getting at. That we need community. That we need the church. That they're here for you. Not just to tell you how wrong you are when you mess up. But they're here for your well-being. Because they care about your soul. Because they want to see you reach the same end that they're aiming for. Keeping all of us focused on that ultimate prize. This is the role that the church should be playing in your life. Absolutely believe that. But that means we have to ask ourselves a couple questions. And I'm going to start with basically me, my role here at the church, especially church leadership. We have to ask a question. Are we, especially as church leadership, committed to developing a strong culture of community that is focused on helping each other run the race well? Listen, part of my job here is supposed to be adult discipleship, connecting people and whatnot. And over the last year with COVID, and I can make excuses all day long, but we just haven't done the best job. We just haven't. And for that, um, I'm sorry. I am, truly am. But also, I would say that, man, let's commit to this. Let's look towards hopefully mid-January. We're going to have a little bit of a relaunch of, of home groups. New Bible studies, studies are going to be starting up. There is opportunities now to still get connected. There are still home groups going on. There are Sunday school groups happening. There is Bible studies happening. I encourage you that we want to be part of developing a strong culture of community that isn't just about learning God's Word. That is the central focus. However, it also encompasses helping each other run the race well. But you and I as individuals should also be asking, am I committed to doing my part to invest in the lives of others around me? If you notice a sin that's in my life, especially as a leader here in this church, you are welcome to approach me and tell me about that. Encourage to do that. But I would also say that if your first interaction with anybody is to criticize or accuse, that's going to be met with defensiveness and suspicion. So what's going to make it hold weight? You need to know them. I'll listen to you a lot better if I know you know me. You may be right. I'm just saying 
part of this idea is that we know each other well enough to have a conversation that we listen. We learned this week that Doug Maddox died this past week of cancer. I'm fighting over the last year or so. And Doug Max was here when I got here. Many of you may not know him. I honestly didn't know him very well. But I remember a particular interaction with him. Uh, you know why? Because he invited me out to lunch. You know why? Because we just I was a young kid 10 years ago or however long it was. And he said, why don't we go have lunch? And you know what he did? He asked me questions. He asked me a question about me, my wife, didn't have any kids yet, my future, my plans, what I wanted to do. You know what I also remember about our interaction? that some of you might appreciate if you know him, he told me that I should really consider taking a speech class. (laughs) He did. And he said, your pronunciation, a couple of things, you tend to stop, and I do, I talk too fast and all that stuff. He's like, you would really benefit from this. But listen, it's been like at least eight years since I've had that conversation. You know what? I remember. And and I didn't really know him very well, but you know what I did know? He cared about me. And and the reason why he took me out to lunch was not to criticize, but it was to generally invest in in me. And And I still remember that today hear me well if you're older than any of the young families in here we need encouragement you can be that encouragement my family has a lot of encouragement it's blessed us there are some families here they need help too so appreciate this church so appreciate this community but it's going to take Everyone creating this culture and then saying, I am willing. I am willing to do my part. And I know, and I know that the church, maybe you feel, has failed you in some ways. Where, where you haven't got that invite. Where you've been here for however many years and maybe you don't know that many people. And I would say two things to you very quickly. Number one, I'm sorry. That's not who we want to be as a church. But number two, I would also say community is a two-way street. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. You reach out. You invite someone to your home. You reach out and say, hey, I don't really know you. My name is such and such, and I've been here five years. How long have you been here? Oh, I've been here 15. How do we not know each other? That's a very good question. Reach out to me if you need need a list of home groups, want to know what's going on in Sunday school. We'll help you. But don't sit back and wait. Take the initiative. Take the initiative to invest in the other people around you. Paul calls everyone to not grow weary in, in doing good. And to look out for brothers and sisters in Christ. And then lastly, we should ask this question. Do I have people in my life who can point out my error? We have 300-something people in this church. They're not all going to know you. I don't need everyone telling me how wrong or when I messed up. But I need someone. I probably need a couple someones. I'm not concerned that you're not best friends with everybody in this church. But what I am concerned is that you're known. That you have someone that can not only keep you accountable and call out you in your sin, but also that cares about your soul, that will encourage you, that will come alongside you, that will cheer you, that will help you in your maturity and spiritual walk. This is what it, what it means. This is what we need to have true, genuine community. We need to be committed to genuine community. Talk about that all day. Paul tells us that we need to stay diligent in good works. He says that we need to stay committed to genuine community. And then here finally, in these last three verses that we'll just hit briefly, he's going to tell us that we need to stay reliant on God's gifts. We need to stay reliant on God's gifts. Three verses, four gifts. And this probably could be a whole other sermon series. You get to some of these verses and you're just like, oh man, what am I supposed to preach out of that? 
I just leave that to the end. And then I'm like, oh, no, I'm out of time. And there's way too much to say. So I'm going to just give you four gifts briefly that we need to stay reliant on for any of this to work. You want to stay diligent in good work. You want to stay committed to genuine community. You're going to need these four gifts. Be reliant on them. First one, God's peace. To verse 16. Now the, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. You want peace with God, it has to come through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. There is no other way for you to be reconciled towards God until you place your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, understanding that He died for your sin so that you might be with Him forever. And that He has called you to a purpose today. That's the only way you can be reconciled to God, to have peace with Him. But you know what? The only way you're going to have peace with each other, the only way that we're going to have peace in this church God, God giving us this peace. The only way we're going to have peace in this crazy world that we're living in, in some of the difficult circumstances that some of you have faced over this past year or two, you know what you're going to need? God's peace. You need to be reliant on God's peace. Paul couldn't give it to the Thessalonians. I can't give it to you. As much as we would want to, we, we can't. It only comes from God. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Then he says, we need to be reliant on God's presence. It's the end of verse 16. The Lord be with you all. This doesn't mean that God isn't with you sometimes. And that we need to really pray hard so that we have him all the time. I think really what it's speaking to is that we may enjoy the benefits of God's presence as we walk in alignment with his will for our lives. We need to experience that joy. We need to be reliant on Him, His presence in our lives to keep us on that path. He has given us gifts like the church to help us in these ways. But we need to be reliant on God's presence in our lives. Number three, we need to be reliant on the Word of God. This comes from verse 17. It sounds a little different when I read it from the Bible, but this is what it's saying. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Relying on God's word. Yes, because what Paul was saying in verse 17 was, I am an apostle. This is truly from me. It was a common mechanism. He probably spoke this letter. Someone wrote it down, but then he took his hand, signed it as a stamp of the authenticity of the letter. Well, we have the authentic word of God. And we are to take uh, the word of God, inspired, inerrant word, just as this church was receiving Paul's letter as if it came, because it did, from God himself. We need to be reliant on God's word. Not culture, not people in the church that want to go this way or that way or be lazy or I don't. Nope. We need to be reliant on God's word. And then lastly, Paul prays that the church would know God's grace. That's verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He ends his first letter with the same thing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But here he adds all. And I think the overwhelming thing that unites this passage together is his theme of unity. He's trying to call the lazy and call the idle and call those that are way uh, off the track and also call those who are weary to say, no, all. I want all of you to experience all four of these things. I want all of you to experience these gifts from God. That's what's going to enable you to press on. That's going to enable you to not grow weary, to be diligent in good works, to be committed to genuine community. You need to be reliant on God's gifts, his peace, his presence, his word, his grace. So much more we could say. But I'll just leave you with this quote from Pastor 
19th century, hopefully both an encouragement and a challenge to you. Love is always lavish. It does not stop to compute values. It breaks its alabaster and fills the house, the church, and the world with its fragrance before legalism has finished its calculation. If you are conscious of weariness, is it not because your estimate of the preciousness of Jesus has been dwarfed? And if you would be awakened to energy again, you must contemplate first the fullness of his propitiatory work and the loveliness of his character so that gratitude and love may twine together on the lattice of his promise and bring forth much fruit that shall remain. Go measure the love of Calvary. Tell your soul again the gospel story. Be found looking to Jesus. Then shall your Christian work be an ever-growing delight. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we're thankful that our work can be an ever-growing delight. Lord, may you help us be committed to good works. May you help us be committed to genuine community. Lord, may you help us be reliant on your gifts. Lord, I pray that we would dive into your word, but that we would practice your word, that you would so move in us that we would strive to be the community that you have called us to be, that we would keep on keeping on. We pray these things in your name. Amen.